I'm not quite sure. There are several asteroid bits. So okay. when when that when the mouth asteroid and the Minox thing happens, is that that's an empire? empire? That's empire. empire. Okay, so there's no empire escapes in Jedi, but there are asteroid escapes in A New Hope, and so there's a, there's a weird way in which the movies become they do blur together. A movie, right? I do notice that having also watched them back to back. Interesting. Yeah, you guys both did the full trilogy. Watch. Yeah. Well, we watched them together yesterday. Uh, okay. Yeah, and, and then, then well, I came home and finished. But Art left, and I watched uh, Jedi by myself with gotcha. well, Whitney and David, with students. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I watched them all yesterday. Well, and Rogue One did on Wednesday. Nice. So I'm nice. fully, fully immersed in the universe. Yeah, and I still don't know anybody's name. I'm perfect. You so, shouldn't remember anybody's name. It's a children's film. It'd be stupid to remember anybody's <laughs> name. I know there's Ewoks. And in the treehouse village, they are adorable. And it, what what a great toy set! I wish I could have back village all was. the hours I spent on Wikipedia in my teens and twenties. <laughs> have that time back, God. Truly, the, only. the greatest resource. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where we gather around a table, we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. We end our part threes, part tray. Uh, marathon of uh, doing uh, third entries in franchises with uh, a bang with uh, the big daddy, I guess, of part threes. I, I, maybe a big daddy? A, a, Mount a, Rushmore. A bigger daddy, a Mount Rushmore daddy, yeah. yeah. Uh, with Return of the Jedi. <laughs> it's about daddies. <laughs> it's about, you know what? This movie's got daddy issues. Uh, so, Will. Everybody's a daddy. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I remain Dalton. And uh, in case you're tuning into the show for the very first time, this movie from 1983 is going to get spoiled by us. But we'll try to avoid it in case you have been living under a stone. And uh, the way we do that is we'll have a synopsis in which uh, Arthur will just tell us what the movie's about, like you might read in a log line. Uh, Then we'll move on to thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which you're going to see if people like this movie or not, which might involve plot. But not spoilers. Uh, we move on then to a game called Expanding the Syllabus, which might involve some vague, gentle spoilers of films or films of this uh, film's ilk, of its like, of its kind, of its cloth. And then we move on to uh, business, the business being analysis. There'll be music to let you know that that's when the spoiler bets are off because we are down to our business socks doing the things um, that require business and analysis and spoilers. So... With that, you have been warned, friends and neighbors. Arthur, do you have a synopsis with which to delight us? I do. And this one comes straight from Disney+. Plus. I went straight to the source. Okay. Uh, Luke Skywalker faces Darth Vader in a final duel. Correct. I mean, okay, that happens. (laughs) What a terrible synopsis. Okay. I'm going to try a freestyle one. I think I can do it. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) Following the dramatic conclusion of The Empire Strikes Back, Han Solo is frozen in carbonite. Luke is uh, shuddered, shooken by his new revelations, uh, and Leia must cobble the group together and uh, help them continue on. Uh, Han must be rescued in a daring attempt to save him, and Luke must discover the truth of his origins and his family. Right? That's like a little bit more flavor. I don't know. Yeah, that's a setup. Yeah. That's a setup. I don't want to like give away too much. It's, yeah. Who ha- how many people listening to this? We we're making the mistake of talking about Star Wars online, which we haven't done in years. Uh how many people do you think have never seen these movies and are listening to this? Probably no one, right? I would assume. Th- they're listening to the show? 
Yeah. I would assume that they have if they're listening to this show. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. more likely, they've never heard our show before, and they were looking for Return of the Jedi yeah. podcast. Correct. That's yeah. what I was On thinking. its 40th anniversary. Yeah, which is fun. Just coming out of a re-release in theaters with a dope poster. Really mm-hmm. good. I like that poster. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Keithan, a uh, friend yeah. of the show and our patron, got to go to that uh, that uh, that new re-release, and uh, he told me he was sitting in the theater, and he was like, man, I... I don't know. I was sitting there in the theater. I was like, is this? I could have seen like something else. Like, is this really that best use of my time? And as soon as that Star Wars hit, he told me, he's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I made, the right call. I made the right call. And that's, yeah, that's kind of how I feel about these movies. I'm like, do I really yeah. want to watch this bullshit? And as soon as that, <laughs> I'm just like, okay, yeah, okay, I guess I do. It's, you know, it's catnip for my dumb little brain. It surely is. But let's discuss this. What does Return of the Jedi do for you as a cinematic viewer? Does that film continue to reward that revisit to the well do you like return of the jedi that's the question in review arthur gordon what do you say return of the jedi go Uh, you know i didn't know where i was gonna land i mean i'm not a huge i guess star wars person anyway um maybe the coolest at the table i would assume um probably i mean i've seen all the movies i haven't really bought into the shows um that's kind of my fandom I've, i've seen a lot of the movies you know all of the movies now uh-huh. Rogue One. Um, finally. So I was curious where I would land on this. Uh, I haven't seen the entire trilogy in a very long time, probably. So to rewatch them all was uh, somewhat of a treat because they are all solid movies, um, no matter how I might feel about them. And I think for me, Return might be my favorite watch. I still think Empire's the best of this trilogy. Correct. I think pretty easily. Uh, But I think I like Return more than A New Hope. I think that it's just... uh, I think it moves a little better. Uh, I think all of these, you know, I kind of really understood uh, more about the structuring of these films this time and the watch of them. Um, Because watching all of them, there's just a lot of movie here. I mean, none of them are... I mean, this is the longest one at 2.15, I think, Mm -hmm. 2.18. But each one feels about three years long because of how much (laughs) stuff is happening. It's it's not I mean it is a pacing thing but it's just that heavily episodic nature of each movie that there are full kind of plot lines with arcs and rising and falling action within 20 to 40 minute intervals. It's a fair complaint for like all nine of them honestly. Yeah. yeah. And so I I think you know coming into this one like the first four, the Jabba's Palace stuff moves so fast. I paused it at one point and it was already 40 minutes and I'm like what? You know, happened. Uh, and then the remaining hour and a half was a little slower. But I think this one's the most fun. I, I love the Jabba's Palace stuff is so good. Um, all the set pieces there. Uh, I just really like focusing on Han and Leia and anybody but Luke. And I think that's one of the stronger aspects of Empire. And this is... We don't really have to deal with Luke as much. Uh, and then when Shots. we do get to deal with we it, Well, but when we do, it's like cool character yeah. stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's really the best use of Luke, I totally. think, as he tries to reckon with Vader. I mean, we do get the, and the, the face-off with Vader's cool. Like, all that stuff works really well. And so I think all those set pieces culminate in a way that's just good. And then Lando getting to fly the Falcon into combat. Like, all those things work for me. Uh, we get some good meme moments out of this one. Uh, I like indoor. Or indoor, I like... Uh, I like the Ewoks. Uh, they got a cool treehouse village. I'm not mad about that. Uh, I think they're fun and adorable, and they just go to work on some uh, some futuristic tech, like uh, little Ewoks would. 
and I like that about it. I, I like also um, movies that give us military troops that have terrain, uh, terrain designed uniforms. So you know mm-hmm, we get the forest mm-hmm. troopers and we get the uh, tie fighter trooper. You know, like I love. Oh, that. so you were freaking out in Rogue One when they showed you the beach troopers? Oh yeah, and just yeah, give me yeah. terrain. You know, varied uh, troopers. I, I you know it makes zero practicality sense, but it's just cool. Yeah, I mean it's the GI Joe thing, like. It's just fun. And so that whole thing works for me. I like the uh, forest chases on the bike, the cruisers. That's cool. Uh, so this one has a lot of fun stuff in it. I think it works really well. I think all the character stuff really works here. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, of these movies, I think it's my favorite. I think it just flows really well, really smooth. Um, and the one I'd probably want to rewatch more than the other two. Probably. Okay. That's All where right. I'm at. Very good. Very good. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, do you like, do you continue to like, Do you? did you ever like Return of the Jedi? Well, childhood me is looking at Arthur going, yes, good. Because this was this is the one I always went to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took this to daycare and made, uh, when I was a kid, and <laughs> yeah, made, you did. made them show it to a bunch of six, seven, and eight-year-olds. Uh, you know, not thinking about uh, how deeply horny parts of this movie are. Uh, but look, I, I don't tell you, when I was a child, <laughs> I was bestowed a cursed artifact. It contained three VHSs and a black box. Yeah. No CGI had been applied to these VHSs yet. Uh, well, a, a little. They'd, they'd already done even in 95, some some smoothing over the theatricals, but we hadn't done the full special edition yet. But anyway, yeah, I grew up with that dumb 95 box set. And uh, this was the one I always went to. I just, you know, I, I, I agree with Arthur. It's got the best use of Luke. It's got the most exciting lightsaber fights. And that was always, you know, when I was growing up with Star Wars, that was what appealed to me. And, you know, this was a pre-prequel era. Those those films hadn't started coming out yet. And uh, their cool flippity-hoppy fights had not hit screens. So what we had was, you know, Obi-Wan versus Vader, Vader versus Luke, Luke versus Vader. We had three lightsaber fights across three movies, and that was what, you know, those of us who liked that part of the movie had to go with. And as a child, I, I went to this one because it looked the coolest. And I, Arthur, throughout your review, I was just kind of, yeah, I was just I was just agreeing with everything you were saying because I think those were the things that always attracted me to this one. And I agree with you. I think Empire is the most adult, the most mature, um, and, and, you know, kind of the most interesting uh, of these three films, but this is like the most exciting children's adventure film, like kind of the cleanest, you know, they all have maybe too many threads going, mm-hmm. but I think a new hope, especially is just kind of takes a little bit to get going. You know, you got to meet Han and Leia and it takes a while to get them on screen and really kind of get the band together. Uh, as you said, like, yeah, the first 40, 45 minutes of this one, just fly by mm-hmm. and it's full of interesting stuff. You know, Luke and, uh, showing up to Jabba's palace, a, a little bit of a bad boy, Han and Leia reuniting and, and sort of like confirming, yeah, no, 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 that, that conversation we had at the end of the last movie was, was real. Like, I, I feel this way about you. So again, we, we start off with like a lot of good action, but also a lot of good character development. And, and it's just like a beautiful to look at movie. The analog special effects here, whether it's Phil Tippett's Rancor uh, and all the other stuff he did for these movies, but uh, also the great matte paintings we get. I mean, you mentioned the Ewok Treehouse uh, Forest or uh, Treehouse Village. And yeah, the matte paintings there are great. I love the lighting in those nighttime scenes in the village with uh, Han and Leia. Uh, just to really, I, you know, I, 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 I always think about the great direction in Empire um, but this was the first time watching this one that I was kind of really struck by like, oh, well, this is like a, a really good looking film. Mm-hmm. And you forget that 
movies used to be pretty sometimes. Yeah. Uh, not all modern films are bad, but we, we definitely talk a lot about blockbusters modern, used to be pretty. Yeah, we, we talk a lot about modern cinematography conventions and, and how those are kind of weird and yeah, not not as beautiful as they once were. <clears throat> But yeah, Dustin, I, to answer your question, I am still pretty much fully on board with this movie. I think it's a, an exceptional children's adventure film. Uh, I like the Ewoks, too. It's glorious teddy bear asymmetrical warfare. It's very <laughs> cool. And there's like real pathos. You know, when an Ewok goes down, like the film takes a beat. Yeah, to be oh, I like, wept. Yeah, this is as a child. This is war yesterday. This is yeah. hell. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's great, yeah. right? Yeah, that's all I can think of. Oh, the Ewoks are experienced war loss. That's tragic. Yeah. Well, and it, and it follows, like, again, this isn't one of the ones Lucas directed himself, but he's got a co-screenwriting credit, and much like A New Hope, this carries through a lot of his kind of political allusions to 20th century American politics uh, with, you know, the Rebel Alliance and the Empire kind of positioned as uh, the, the, the military, uh, uh, this, this great military force up against, you know, villagers and, you know... Um, irregular militaries essentially and i i like that they bring that through line back in this film and kind of find a again a cute children's film way to to bring this threat of guerrilla warfare into into this film with you know little teddy bears it's fun uh ian mcdermott i i guess we'll go on that like what a performance uh i don't have a lot of love for the disney sequel trilogy i like one of those films a great great deal and i think the other two are whatever uh, but Ian McDermott is so good in this particular film that it makes sense that they kept bringing him back. Like they, you know, Lucas brings him back for all three and kind of builds the trilogy, the prequel trilogy around him. And somehow, and somehow he returns, he returns through Disney contracts. <laughs> and yeah, like I get it. He's so good in this role. Like he's so menacing mm-hmm. and like funny. Uh, it's really just a great all-time great villainous performance and it goes so well with James Earl Jones voice performance like they, the two of them like really are great together and it's it's kind of you know along with Empire this film does hang a lot maybe more so than you know A New Hope at least on on sort of the Imperial POV because Luke is yeah. spending so much time with Vader yeah and, and like that aspect of the story I think is really compelling and it just sort of uh fits the sort of darker tone that you find in all of empire and parts of this film. And, uh, you know, I think that that was kind of the strength of the original trilogy is the way it sort of matures over the course of the three films while never losing sight of its, its status as a children's film. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's easy to say that this is the cleanest of the three trilogies and this is probably the cleanest of the three trilogy cappers, but uh, this this film does kind of give you an appreciation for the whole thing. I think you 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 already know if you like this. If this isn't for you, it's not for you, and that's fine. Like whatever. Our, you know, Arthur's already said he's kind of cool on this this franchise, and I've definitely had my my complicated relationship with it, trying to like evaluate it as a as a film, you know, critically, and and not just as a piece of nostalgia and a piece of IP that like appeals to me in my childhood. Um, so that's that's what I find interesting about this film franchise as a whole, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, as we get going. Dustin, what about you? How did you feel about this film growing up? How do you feel about it now? You watched all three films yes. in prep. How how does this sit for you? I think you know you, we, we've been you've been banding around the term children's film, and of course they're all children's films, but Big this time. is this is the one that sort of leans most heavily into what it is and what it began as. And Empire is this sort of weird place in the middle and uh in some ways that's why how it rises above the rest of the material and that's why i think it tends to be the the more well thought of 
uh, film in the trilogy. But I, I do think that there's a thing that the film does that's really um, interesting in terms of its pacing. It is the longest film, but it doesn't feel the longest. It doesn't yeah. feel nearly as long as Empire or as A New Hope because Empire and New Hope feel more Shakespearean in their structure. And what I mean by that is five-act structure. Yeah. That there's just lots and lots of bits of stuff, and there are these longer periods of breathability and the the ability to intercut and to move in a much just leaner sort of uh, storytelling structure really works here. Just getting us right from inciting incident to rising action to final climax, uh, following that Freytag's pyramid kind of style of uh, storytelling and fiction really, really works for this. Uh, I think the characters are all paid off in a really great way. Uh, we have Lando's gets a payoff. Uh, R two and three PO get payoffs. Obviously, our our main our main you know Hermione, Ron, and uh, Harry get their payoff there as well. And so all of that really, really <laughs> works uh, for just making it uh, just a significant uh, contribution to the franchise, as well as introducing new characters and new locations. Jabba the Hutt, first time we see him because we don't see him in A New Hope. Um, I <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. I, yeah, that didn't happen. Also, this character only appears in this film. Yeah, only ever in this film. Also, um, you know, there isn't this long musical break in Jabba's Palace in which... Um, no, I do like that. You do? <laughs> it's grown. It's grown on me. Yeah, oh, I don't know why. I don't it's either. So fucking stupid. <laughs> yes, you are correct there. And yet, and and yet, it's like maybe one of the only special edition things. And I'm like, okay, I, I get it. <laughs> Incorrect. Uh, but the rest of it really works uh, for me. And again, that's I, I can still sort of like silo those little bits and pieces to it. Uh, I I do love the costuming choices for Luke. I think about this a lot. Yeah, dude. This, this incredible way in which they're able to merge uh, the Western bones of the this genre mashup that is Star Wars with that double-breasted John Wayne-style kind of suit with something that's kind of priestly uh, for a Jedi Knight as some sort of clergyman, <laughs> a cleric in Dungeons & Dragons yeah, speak, right? But also using sort of the Man in Black conventions yeah. to make us be like, oh, what's going on with Luke? It, yeah, it, 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 but it's not like moody Luke so much as mature Luke. And I mean, he is moody, but he's not. Say, he's, yeah, he's, but, but he's not he's going moody. to Tashi Station to get some power converters anymore. I mean, well, canonically, he has done because Tashi Station's probably destroyed. Maybe <laughs> I was very still, likely. He's probably still in Tatooine. But you know, he's in <laughs> full dark side mode. Yoda said, "Going to help your friends is giving into the dark side," and that is where we left him at the end of Empire is doing and, what he wasn't supposed to do. And he certainly does seem to be resisting that well, but he does seem to be sort of yin-yang conflicting I mean, right He now. chokes out some dudes with his mind, yeah. Right, but no, 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 they, they are holding his He's friends. He's much more Batman than Superman. Yes, yes. In, 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 in this opening moment there. Also, this film hates your hands, uh, but uh, this entire franchise just hates hands, and I... I think that's just a fun bit uh, that goes on with it. But yeah, um, give me my space wizards with, with teddy bears. I will give this one criticism because I think they could have done better uh, because they did. Uh, Arthur made the comment about the way in which uh, Chewbacca's uh, head head uh, mask, he's able to sort of emote within it. Mm -hmm. And they really don't go that extra mile with the Ewok What are you masks. talking about? They got full human lip action. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have muscles like Chewie does. No. I, they I, just have like 
Just yeah, it's just there. Lips. Yeah, just lips. <laughs> and I, I, I just wish they had gone just a step further. More motive. W- w- motive with that. Yeah, I imagine it's because they had to make more. There's so I mean, many obviously they're making yeah. tons of them. Yeah. 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 But, I mean, it's not like they were lacking in money. No. And it's not like they haven't gotten paid back. Or you pick the few front runner, front, front yeah, yeah. Ewoks and give them... A little yeah, bit of a, a little bit better mask. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, you've got your Wicked character, who's definitely the cutest design, but you still though, there's not real. There's not, there's know, not the same effort as put little there. chirps work enough to get us to cry when that one dies. I mean, I, no, I feel it. No, I, I absolutely I don't do feel it. But uh, that, that's just the only thing that I'm just like. I just wish they. Why do you hate this movie? I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to be as even handed. I have the internet right with, now with the nostalgia goggles because I do really, really have a lot of affection for it, and I do think it really holds up well. I do think that, and I was remarking on this as well in the rewatch, and this is sort of a whole trilogy bit of review that. HD televisions and HD scans and prints actually probably do the series a bit of a disservice because there is a strong difference between the special edition editions and what we have uh, as far as artifacts on screen and the seams of that which is still using the sort of analog 1970s, early 1980s uh, special effects techniques. You see a little bit more of them. It, this movie is meant to be watched on VHS on a CRT TV. That's, I mean, that's that's really where you need to see it if you're seeing it at home or just seeing it in the theater on 35 mil, where, uh, again, that forgives a lot of those errors as well. So I just that's, you know, one of those things that I find that doesn't age it well. Part Although, of the charm for me, though. Uh, it, does, yeah. it does have a continued charm. And I will say this, for a film made in, uh, a series made in the 70s into the early 80s, it is a movie series that did manage to stave off aging for a long time. And that is impressive. And we sort of need to recognize game when we see game there. And uh, just recognize that it was, you know, the 2000 aughts probably. Well, until... and some of the stuff, like some of those matte paintings, like you wouldn't, unless you know, you don't know. Mm-hmm. Like there's yeah. especially yeah. the big like imperial scenes. Like, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff in here that I think like still looks incredible yeah it really works so um yeah dear listener our views on return of the jedi are generally pro um though arthur seems to suggest he's a little cooler but yeah i think he's about where we all are i don't know but we'll see um we'll we'll talk more about this let's move on to the next part of our show which is called expanding the syllabus and dalton is going to tell us what that's about i thought you were going to go to me i don't know why um yeah so this is the part of the show where we deliver on our premise uh we talk about the films you would never discuss in a film studies course and we do it in a film studies type way and this is where we take return of the jedi or whatever the week's assigned viewing is and say how would we teach this what would we pair with it what kind of class would it be what sort of material would we cover and what sort of ideas would we be considering uh, that's expanding the syllabus in a nutshell. That's right. Um, do you have a syllabus prepared for us today, my friend? Yeah, I'm sort of I'm a little <laughs> futzy with this one. I thought about this one. Futzy? Futzy. Futzy. Yeah. Uh, you know, last week I did a full, like, let's just talk about Scream as a mm-hmm. franchise. Let's just do a class. And I was like, I don't want to do a Star Wars class. I want to do the same thing two weeks in a row for starters. And second of all, I'm just like, that's who wants to do that, honestly? No. Who would even want to teach that? It's just a nightmare. Like what do you what do you, how do you deal with you like do a all franchise the films course I yeah. guess or something and that's maybe what this would be mm-hmm. uh, this yeah. would be like kind of a I, I think we would look at what we've been doing for three marathons now over the course of about three years uh, I think I think twenty twenty was when we did our first uh, part. Uh, threes but anyway three is part one part three is part one exactly uh, <laughs> part part three is the beginning uh, a I, new hope <laughs> Jesus anyway uh, I, I think th- this would be a class on trilogy cappers. And I think what's been interesting about talking about these films over these three marathons 
is sort of kind of the variation you get with a part three. And I, I talked about this a little bit, I think, when we did Pitch Perfect Part Three uh, a gazillion years ago. I think maybe that class was also kind of built around trilogy cappers, mm. uh, at, at least a little bit. But I, I think, you know, we, we have different kinds, whether you're looking at this marathon specifically or the other Part Three's marathons we've done. I, I think what you see is, you know, we've we've got a couple of, you know, we've got trilogy cappers, but then we have trilogy cappers that create new trilogies. So, right, we did Batman Forever, not really a trilogy capper, just kind of a part three and a, a part four, a four-part movie franchise that would have gone on longer if three and four had been more successful. Mm-hmm. You've got Alien 3, sort of the same thing. It's just kind of a, we're, we're going to do this happened. as long as they'll let us. And yeah, it's not really, I mean, the the they invented the word quadrilogy for the Alien films. <laughs> uh, but then you have Logan, which is sort of a definitive trilogy capper. Uh, you have Jurassic Park 3, which is for a while a definitive trilogy capper and then starts another trilogy of films. Now you have this film, which is sort of obviously creates two entirely other trilogies of films. And and somewhere in there you have like The Godfather Part 3 or Return Oof. of the King, where mm. films we haven't discussed on this show but would be good for this class because they are very definitively the end of their stories, uh, no matter what Amazon wants you to think. Uh <laughs> That's the end of that's as far as uh, Tolkien got. Everything else is like prologue, you know, but my my man wrote three books and that's pretty much all he did. And George Lucas probably should have taken notes. No offense. <laughs> uh, hey, I like the prequels and I think they're interesting. And we would have to talk about Revenge of the Sith and how it relates to Return of the Jedi. And we'd have to talk about the Rise of Skywalker. I think if we looked at more than one Star Wars film in this class, it would be to look at the final three in each trilogy the final third one, uh, rather, and uh, kind of com- do some compare and contrast work. You know, where is Empire, or where is Revenge of the Sith, say, more serious than Return of the Jedi? Where is Rise of Skywalker echoing these other two films that came before it? You know, playing around with some of these ideas. Uh, but I think that's the only way, well, not the one, the only way, but that's, that's how I figured out how you could get away with teaching Return of the Jedi, is sort of, yeah, build the class around the idea of concluding a trilogy, and and sort of explore what trilogies even look like, how they can manifest, and, and uh, what are the pros and cons of that sort of, not necessarily long-form storytelling, but at the very least, uh, extended storytelling. All right, very good, very good. I think that totally works. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton. Or Mr. Arthur Gordon, have you brought a syllabus to delight us with today? Yeah, I, ha- I have. Uh, and this would be in a course on, I don't know, We'd figure it out, uh, but it'd be about sci-fi production design. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, one of the things we kind of kept remarking on watching the uh, the trilogy is the, uh, I mean, the production design is just stellar. I mean, you already talked about the matte paintings, but I mean, the interiors of the the Falcon and uh, the finely polished floors of the Death Star and Death Star 2. Uh, all of those things just look great. The world looks lived in. The costumes look like they've been worn uh, for a few uh, days or months, uh, depending on who the character is. And so I think that's something I'd want to kind of focus on is uh, sci-fi films uh, that have good production design and how that can kind of add to the story or how they can influence other films. And so I think we would just start uh, at the beginning. We'd go with Metropolis. Um, nice. Yeah, I mean, despite what some of us might think about that movie uh, and how it has aged, I mean, the production design, the influence of its visual style has just continued for over 100 years, or roughly 100 well, years. Well, so it influences C-3PO. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 I mean, there, uh, we got the, uh, 
you know, Metropolis has influenced uh, music. I mean, Madonna, Janelle Monae have both pulled from Metropolis. Uh, just about any kind of futuristic dystopian world. Uh, Blade Runner itself, you know, has pulled Dark City, Echoes, Metropolis. And so its impact is just resounds and, and has for decades. Um, and then we'd look at Alien. When I think of horror, when I think of production design, when I think of sci-fi uh, design, uh, I think of uh, Alien and what Ridley Scott's team did there to make that movie uh, grody and lived in and like a trucking crew had been on the road for a while uh, and perfectly sets up a place and a space for a kooky alien to stalk mm -hmm. them uh, in a way that is very unsettling. Uh, I think we'd move into a bit of the uh, cleaner future and we'd look at her. Uh, yeah, and it's yeah. very sleek. The iPhone story. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the appleness of that world uh, in Spike Jones's Her and how that all kind of emulates a probably not so distant future that doesn't seem that far off. Mm -hmm. and, and the way people live, the way people look, the way people dress, uh, it feels very real in a way that could almost happen. Yeah, yeah. Feel feel subsequent in, as opposed to something apocalyptic or some sort of heartbreak yeah. has taken place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'd probably go back. We'd take a look at uh, Jurassic Park. I mean, production design of the park, of the uh, island itself, of all of the different exhibits and the rides and the cafeteria and all of those fine uh, uh, dining establishments that are Talk on the island. Talk about dino DNA. Dino DNA. Uh, Nedry's workspace, the computer uh, lab, uh, where everybody's kind of headqu headquartered in. Uh, we'd look at all of that control center. Uh, we look at uh, the aforementioned Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 mm -hmm. and, you know, the sort of futuristic dystopian capitalist society that has been established there and how that looks and feeds into the noir elements of both of those films. Uh, and to stay on a bit of a uh, Denis Venu uh, kick, we'd look at Arrival and the designs of the ships uh, and the spaces where they are working with those ships. Uh, we look at Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, nature does a lot of the work there for us, but uh, we look at the sets, the encampments, the vehicles themselves, how all of that comes together, how that informs all of our characters and our different uh, sides of that battle that is taking place. Uh, and then I think we'd end with Tron and Tron Legacy, um, which we have spoken at length about, mm -hmm. uh, but look great. Uh, I mean, just really captivating worlds that have been established in those movies. Uh, the lights, the looks, the special effects of it all uh, in the way that feels like a very digital space that just makes sense in, in a weird way. And yeah. so I, I like the design of those films, um, even if the rest of it doesn't really work for me. And so that's what we do. We just spend some time looking at production design in sci-fi films uh, specifically. Very good, very good. Um, so for my syllabus, we have to first of all flash backward about 12, 13 years ago, where I am taking my oldest son through watching these films and mm. am thoroughly invested in film studies, talking about movies all the time, uh, driving my family crazy, uh, doing this kind of stuff. And we're watching the trilogy. So and we've got, I just had to think of 13 years ago. So we've, 2010. Got, ten, we've got two full trilogies of films going. Mm -hmm. And are you... We're watching this trilogy. Just this one. Okay. okay. We're, and we're watching Return of the Jedi. Okay. And my six-year-old, seven-year-old son is sitting beside me as I am watching this, and um, as we're watching the Ewoks rise up and battle against the Empire, he says to me, Dad, this is the way it should have gone down. And I said, what? 
He goes, yeah, the Indians should have yep. done this to I, all those I white people. I immediately knew what you, what you were about to say. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I said, son, I've done very few things right in my life, but this is one thing I'm proud of. And uh, it, was, it was a great moment. But I, I think that is part of the, the charm of this particular film is, yes, the Ewoks are cute, but they're also able to organize in such a way that they're able to face insurmountable odds that are grave themselves. And so I want to think about narratives that are dealing with this kind of... So in, in a sociology of film class or in something where we're sort of just doing kind of a thematic take on various kinds of movies, sort of rando studies of film uh, kind of course. I'm not sure where I'd stick it in as a module, but I, I do want to sort of think about the sort of uh, technological discrepancy resistance films. Yeah. And uh, this is a great example of this. I think Avatar is another one of these films that we would have actually look at, you know, Dance with Blue Pocahontas, which is basically doing the same kind of thing uh, there. And, and the ways in which, again, the conversation lends itself to uh, white uh, messiahs and we need to think about that and sort of unpack some of that, but also thinking about just how these sort of res- a- what methods of resistance sort of take place in film. So I think we'd look at, uh, again, Return of the Jedi. We'd look at this. I think Fern Gully is another film to look at sure. that's worth thinking about for the, for the case of this. And then um, Ernest Goes to Camp. Okay, sure. Neighbors, uh, which I mentioned a couple shows ago, uh, and uh, Ernest P. Worrell yeah. uh, rendered his head just because I was feeling silly that day, but because I said words outside into the world that came back inside my own ears and then hung around inside my head for a while, and the ways in which uh, Camp Kikakee resists the, <laughs> wow, okay. the, the developers uh, there, and um, I, I think that's all really kind of powerful kind of stuff, uh, as, as these sort of sites of resistance that you sometimes see in film where these, uh, again, sort of bow and arrow versions of resistance might resist uh, a colonizing imperial kind of force. Well, and I think you're right to acknowledge sort of the limits of the cinematic imagination in all these stories, right? Mm -hmm. Because whether it's all the ones you just mentioned or, you know, The Last Samurai or Dances with Wolves, you know, these are all stories that need an outsider to come in as a leader, Right, right, yeah. The, the, the organizes the the yeah. You guys have got the stuff, but I can show you how to do the things. Yeah, we need Paul Atreides. We need we need Mudib. It's it's Dune we need rules. Poe the panda. Yeah. Well, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's interesting that this is such a recursive element of Western storytelling is sort of the indigenous fighters who need an outside leader to rally them. Which leads me to the last film that I would use for this uh, side of resistance, which is my favorite film from last year, Neptune Frost in which uh, this sort of Rwandan force uh, becomes their own resistance of themselves, and they refuse to play the game, and they borrow and steal and cobble together from the technologies of empires to create this sort of community of resistance. Uh, that does, in some sense, bring it all down. Uh, I recommend Neptune, Neptune Frost really, really highly uh, as a sort of science fiction uh, approach to this with a heavy sort of anti-colonialist uh, bent as well. So that's the nature of the little module I would stick in a plug-and-play kind of way in various kinds of courses for that. But there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got a little bit longer. Uh, We move on now to the part of the show you're all tuning in for. It's time, my friends, to get down to business. It's business. That's 
Sounds right, dear listener, and that business is analysis, paging Dr. Freud, paging Dr. Freud. Um, everyone always wants to talk about Luke kissing his sister. Um, I, I don't think that there is there, friends. Here's a fun bit of Carrie Fisher performance is when he tells her that she's his sister, she gets this look on her face like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That was a weird kiss. It's it's like it's like a really good perform. I don't know that it's exactly what was going through Carrie Fisher's mind, but like you can read that if you're looking for it. Mm-hmm. It's a really kind of cool. I don't know. I think her acting is a weak point in all nine main Star Wars films um, to varying degrees. But I think this one is one where like everybody's like really keyed in Mm -hmm. Uh, you know it's it's been six plus years of making these films so i think all of these actors are you know kind of used to these roles uh and i've got they've gotten older they're they're more mature and they're really kind of expressing a lot with their faces and you know maybe dialed up a little bit more because it's a children's film you know there's not a ton of like subtlety to the facial expressions but there is like oh oh, okay that's how they feel about like when han is trying to to on a related note trying to express to leia either whether it's right after he walks up after her and luke have talked and he's like what you you can talk to him or it's later on in the film where she's like no i do love you i love Mm -hmm. him he's just he's like i can get out of the way like i think these are all great scenes this is really good performance notes from all all of our, our three key leads but uh, there, there is a lot of like internet, you know, memeism of this kind of stuff, yeah, and sure. and I, I guess that's the first thing I'd want to begin with is that if if you're going to think about those sort of Oedipal kind of conversations about that kind of attraction that that is there's nowhere to go with it, and so it goes in the wrong kind of areas, you know, towards the mother in in the case yeah. of Oedipus or the sister in the case of this sort of incestuous, you know, whatever that Star Wars may be somewhat positing, but. I think really what Lucas is doing is something mythic in a Campbell kind of sense, and he knows that sort of Oedipus and Jocasta story. Mm-hmm. And so what he does is just simply orphans who don't know each other could potentially go this direction, but there is this sort of superseding guidance, the superego, if you're going to get real Freudian with it, that guides the whole thing to keep that from really going somewhere. And even when they're the most passionate kiss that Loke and Leia ever have, she kisses him just to make Han jealous. That's literally the only time they have anything resembling a romantic beat. Yeah. Hey, maybe we should kiss again and make him jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for interesting development pop there. Uh, also, Luke's gay. Don't look at those knee-high black boots and tell me that man ain't queer. I know this is a conversation that's been going on around Star Wars and, like, ever since The Last Jedi, like, you know, what's Luke's deal has kind of become part of the the internet conversation around Star Wars. Yeah, the the clues have been there all along, Mr. Detective. I mean, the Jedi are supposed to be celibate, but whatever. I mean, that's that, that's fun, though. I, yeah. I'll, I'll take that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, <laughs> that's a good time. But my point is simply, I, I, I want to begin the analysis by, I guess, siloing part of the analysis that, again, when, every time I bring this stuff up, uh, I taught uh, a Shakespeare course this last semester, and uh, for our dessert at the end, we read Ian Dushler's uh, William Shakespeare Star Wars oh, alongside okay. A New Hope. And all everyone wanted to talk about was, he's kissing his sister! And I'm like, not. I mean, there's not really a there there. Yes, that's kind of weird, but... 
It's just a screenwriting it's glitch. It's a screenwriting glitch, yeah. Yeah. They did well, and I, that's what I told them. It's like at that point in the writing, they hadn't decided that she was going to be a sister. It was potential that she wouldn't be. And so we just don't know yet. I mean, I think she's very obviously introduced as a love interest. Yes. In Star Wars. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean you know, that's the thing with course correction. It, there's you bring up sort of an interesting bug or feature, depending on how you look at it, of these films. And it really only applies to this set of films and the most recent set of films, because the prequel set of films is like George Lucas has 20 years to like sit alone in his office and sort of map out this crazy Mm -hmm. string board. Yeah. Whereas this (laughs) film, yeah, you've got a huge hit that like there is some backstory in Lucas's mind, but like they haven't built it all out yet. And like, I mean, they don't know if they're going to get a sequel. There's a novel that's, you know, that is the cheap sequel to A New Hope, if they if it's not a huge hit, right? Mm-hmm. The Splinter of the Mind's Eye or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with this novel. I, I know that it is a thing. Did it ever actually get published? Yeah, yeah, is yeah. It, it's it like the fi- first Star Wars novel. Okay. Yeah, because it was like the early draft for what a Star Wars sequel could be I if see. it wasn't a huge hit. Yeah, and they kind of turned it into this. No, this I have not read it. Kind of character-driven conflict novel where I think Vader is like confirmed to still be alive. I think that's what it's holding. Oh, okay. Like. Luke and Leia meet Vader or something. Had they made their mind up that Vader's the father? Because that was also up in the air at that point. Right, yeah. I think only Lucas knows that. Um, well, it doesn't even know. It hasn't decided for sure. Like, well, but yeah, that's when he, when he starts telling people is like not even during the production of Empire. Only some of the set up, only some of the people involved in the production of that film uh, no. know that plot. I mean, it's, yeah. it is like they knew the Internet was coming. It's very, yeah. I mean, kind of modern era level of uh, subterfuge as far right. as trying to keep spoilers from getting out. It's kind of interesting to me. But uh, all, again, all of this to say, like, this isn't. It's not the. Well, that's a bad example, too. It's not a religious text. You know, it's, it's not just something that's been floating around for a thousand years and nobody's like 100% sure on all the attributions. Like, we know how this was developed. And as you said, like, a lot of it was kind of on the fly, mm-hmm. especially the most recent three films. But, you know, the original three films are also not, you know, free from this sort of accident of film production you right know, it's, it wasn't all entirely mapped out and there are retcons and there are mm-hmm. you know like again decisions that were made at a later time and and things that like d- you know because of the order of operations of decision making look gross mm-hmm. but again i agree with you there's no there there uh, yeah I, at that, all. and that's really where i i wanted to come down is like i i sort of swim in psychoanalytical circles a little bit in terms of my scholarship and uh this Oedipal thing is is something again not not in the academic discourse mm-hmm. but comes up a lot on the sort of internet meme discourse a lot and it's just I just I, I guess I want to say here that that's not what we talk about when we talk we do talk about the ego and superego regarding the force we do talk about id and the dark side we do talk about uh, the nature of R two D two we do talk about you know uh, the symbolic the real and uh, the uh, symbolic the real and what's the other one imaginary there you go yeah um we talk about those sort of orders and the ways in which they are working in terms of the narrative and those are all fun things to use as tools uh, applied to this but as far as oedipus goes not no not not really i mean look if you want incest in your storytelling that's out there yeah, yeah you can find it somewhere else yeah. there's plenty of there's it. plenty of places for it just so much of it honestly <laughs> but but why do you want to find it so bad that's a question you should ask yourself you should 
don't want to sell me death sticks. You want to go home and think about your life. Moving on, what else do we want to talk about? Uh, well, we talked a little bit last week about how Scream is sort of a post-postmodern oh, uh, yeah. franchise, and we didn't really like drill in on that too much. And mm. I feel like Star Wars is kind of a good example of like a kind of traditional postmodern story. So maybe we could kind of talk about Scream and Star Wars and how they're both very genre aware and yet doing different things. Well, I, uh, the first thing I want to say before we, I, I think that's great. We need to get there, yeah. but let's talk about Randy's rules because this sure. does that thing. Totally. Dude. Th- yeah. This is exactly the thing that Randy was uh, establishing for us all in Scream three in, yeah. in Scream three is that. And, and so what Randy's doing here, uh, he's applying it directly to horror, but I think it does apply to trilogies in general. Cause he does cite non horror trilogies and mm-hmm. is talking about how trilogies are rare proper trilogies are rare in horror correct uh and again scream did not end up being a proper trilogy correct Uh, but again randy acknowledges that that's kind of how horror goes but if you are in a horror trilogy regular trilogy rules apply so basically what he says everything you thought you knew no longer applies the Mm -hmm. past will come back to bite you yep Right. And yep. and no, and everyone's fair game. Yep. Right. Now, of course, everyone survives in this case, but we do sort of find out, oh, by the way, Darth Vader, we already had the, the father reveal, but is the father of twins. So Leia's the sister and uh, all of that sort of stuff is at work here in this. Well, and then we have the, you know, the, the confrontation with Ben's ghost and is like, you lied to me. Well, mm-hmm. no, I'm a Jedi, so I'm a little full of shit and I can say I never lied. Right. Uh, but which I love. I, I just love the sort of circuitous Jedi logic of like well from a certain point of view it's like no that's a lie well no i <laughs> no. George, again george hadn't had his mind made up when he wrote that part of the script but, well but the but there for me is like i think it makes sense with what he'll do in the prequels and mm-hmm. sort of show the jedi as this flawed group of you know should be more involved or less involved depending on the circumstances diplomats which is just uh, a nice way to say manipulators well monks who are di- right religious manipulators mm-hmm. too which is like even worse right yeah and they're cops Yes. Just kind of a bad deal all around. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a crap sandwich right there. Well, and that's friends. what I love about the prequels is like he kind of goes, yeah, it sounds cool in theory, but look how flawed this would be yeah. if it was a real institution. And yeah. I, I think that bit of Ben, like while it is a retcon, is like kind of true to the writing of that character mm-hmm. and later the writing of that order. I don't know. Interesting stuff. Yeah. And we, 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 again, the superhuman villain, mm-hmm. obviously, mm-hmm. well, Vader's already been superhuman the whole time, but we also sort of really ramp up Palpatine. Who what shoots if there was a guy who could shoot lightning? Lightning yeah. out of his fingers, which is insane mm-hmm. as a new development. It again, is. Going OP with that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it, it really, really works. Now, now what you were this saying, Arch Nemesis is gravity though. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It's a bad, you know, it's it's not just a good idea. It's the law. It sucks to fall when you're old. It, you know, it does. And I know you look at that explosion and you think, damn, that's definitive. But somehow. somehow. <laughs> yeah, you knew, you knew. Sorry. Oh, that's good. Well, I mean, Brief they, sidebar. They, they always come back, right? Uh, so your question now, going back, uh, is we want to talk about this as a trilogy itself, as a, as a capper, right? And as, well, as a capper and also as a sort of a work of postmodern, you know, pastiche. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, you know, if we want to talk about why Scream, like what post postmodern is, I know that's a, a kind of a, a theoretical idea we bring up that's not really in it's academic not a discourse. Thing yet, yet. It's not yeah. a thing yet, but we kind of bandy it about as maybe it's becoming a thing. Right. Uh, the, the postmodernness of this particular is it, its hyper referentiality. I, yes. I, I think that the pastiche of it is it is a samurai movie that is a western that is a science fiction that is a Arthurian fantasy that is a Ray Harryhausen creature feature. Correct. Yeah. Yes. And so, how do you have Jason the Argonauts fights magic with 
Akira Kurosawa and the man with no name. You make Star Wars. And also there's teddy bear gorilla fighters. Teddy bear gorilla fighters. Uh, teddy bear gorillas. In... Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I, Both spellings. Sounds like an a- avatar, the last airbender creature. Sure. I, I want that so bad now. Uh, Owlbear. Anyway, uh, yes, that the, the, the pastiche is the cutting and pasting. And it's not past, it, it's pastiche and not homage. Because although clearly The Hidden Fortress by Kira Kurosawa is a massive influence on all three of the films, especially the first film, but even the the speeder bike chase, uh, there's a, there's an extended horse um, uh, scene in a uh, horse race uh, chase scene in Hidden Fortress that apes quite a bit of the pieces uh, of the speeder bike thing in the forest there. And so we still see that particular film playing out. But he's not really, again, sort of like, and now this is where I want everyone to stop what they're doing and think about Seven Samurai. You well, know, it, yeah, it's which not is like, what an homage does. Well, and to stay in this marathon, Logan's doing an homage to Shane, but not really a pastiche because it is like kind of checking boxes and hitting moments. Correct. And, and saying like, we are kind of a traditional, a traditional Western structure here in the superhero movie. Whereas this is a, you know, children's adventure, space wizards film, sci-fi, you know, fantasy. It's 100% its own thing. That's also, yeah, it's doing like eight different things at once in any given scene. And and the, the thing it's doing is the way in which it does copy-paste all these little pieces mm-hmm. together into a new original kind of whole. Mm-hmm. And that 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 is uh, what Frederick Jameson would call pastiche, I think. Yeah. And so... You know, what's the name of that uh, John Carpenter guy? The, the author. Bur- Ambrose Pierce? No, that's a different person. Oh, in The yeah. Mouth of Venice? No, uh, no, the the late eighteen hundreds. Oh, Ambrose Bierce is who you're thinking is that of. That's an, thinking of? Oh, okay. the name right. It was a later influence on um, H.P. Lovecraft. Across the Oak Creek Bridge. Well, uh, I was thinking of specifically John Carter of Mars and and like that. Oh, sort of, uh, Burroughs. Burroughs. Thank you. There we I go. thought you said John Carter. Uh, I did. John Carpenter. I you said John. I thought you said John Carpenter. Uh, okay, gotcha. and I was very confused. Gotcha, I, gotcha. I heard so, Carpenter as well. Oh, my bad guy. I might and I might have said Carpenter instead of Carter. Who knows? My point <laughs> is, we got there though, guys. We got there, and, and what, what I, matters John is the Carter. friends we made along the way. That's true. Uh, it, John Carter is kind of responsible for stuff like Red Sonia and Conan the Barbarian, which yeah. is res- very responsible for Leia in a metal bikini. Like, I, I just yes. fun to kind of like look at the different like this. These... Which is an important moment in my personal history. Yeah, we were. I was watching Return of the Jedi with friends, and I was like, and yeah, this couldn't have possibly had anything to you know impact young and impressionable me. <laughs> this doesn't, <laughs> doesn't spell anything for my proclivities. Not at all. Uh, but again, it's just like, it's pulling from so many different places. And like, again, like yeah. <laughs> at different, like age reference points too, and not, not like age of the content. I mean, like age of the viewer, mm-hmm. uh, the age yeah. of the consumer of the media It is pulling from like all of Lucas's life, right? Mm-hmm. Both childhood and teen years and, and sort of trying Film to make school. Yeah. Make yeah. this four quadrant thing that is for everybody. Right. And so, yeah, it, it, it's, I think it really does succeed as a pastiche in that sense, because it is how do we do this thing, but with all of the other things mm-hmm. that people sort of like. And the pastiche, like homage, plays in this idea of nostalgia. So because I do have this sort of a nostalgic affection for Westerns and this nostalgic affection for Arthurian legend and this nostalgic affection for those Ray Harryhausen uh, creature features and, you know, whatever else, you know, the various bits and pieces, uh, just those World War II movies. I mean, that's another of the bits yeah. of prestige for all the, the fighter uh, sequences in the Death Star. 
how do I combine all of that kind of stuff with a kind of a B feature like Air Force, um, one of those movies, into this thing that is now Star Wars? Again, there's not a moment where you go, oh, I need to stop and watch Air Force, where they put together this team, yeah. and they got the guy from Montana and the guy from yep. New York, and they're all brothers. I mean, they're doing that with the Admiral Akbar, with the various uh, blue leader, green leader, gold leader uh, fighters and with Lando and his um, sort of uh, motley crew on the Millennium Falcon, it's doing the thing that Air Force does, and then doing an air raid, but it's not doing it in the same way in which you would have. Oh, I you know the the way in which the the back of Uma Thurman's head is shown in um, one of Quentin Tarantino's uh, Kill Bill films that makes us go, oh, he's doing Viva Se Vive. I need to go look at Godard now. It's not. It's not. It's not that same sort of on the top homage that again Logan might do. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think what's interesting too now is you have a generation of filmgoers and filmmakers who take in this franchise not having any of those pastiche references, right? And that is, I think, how we get to sort of something past postmodern. Is mm-hmm. you have a generation of storytellers and filmgoers who've grown up with this sort of 70s through 90s era of postmodern film, and you can say that it starts earlier than that if you want to. It does, but yeah, yeah that's fine, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's really when it really, we get cooking. It's cooking, it's, yeah, I yeah. totally agree. Um, it starts to become something like Scream or even the legacy sequel trend, mm-hmm. and I think you could look to the Star Wars sequels and say, that's kind of post-postmodern, because it's taking the Star Wars pastiche and saying, we're aware of it, we're aware of the influence, we're aware of this sort of outsized importance it's developed and how do we reckon with that and try to revisit these ideas. And that's, you know, Scream's getting there by Scream 3 by saying, okay, we've done three self-aware slasher films and now we have to like kind of peer in even further and say like, how do we deconstruct the deconstruction? And they really get there by four, five, and six, uh, scream four, five, and six, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, by getting folding an in internet culture and like larger discourses around slasher films and scream, which is itself a discourse about slasher films. So it's a discourse about discourse, and they are yet still finding a way to <laughs> that equals academia. That does. And <laughs> and it's getting folded into the film in like a compelling way. You gotta see Scream Six. There's an academic yeah. the cold <laughs> open has an academic. Oh, does it? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, you're kind gonna a, love kind it. of a Carol Clover, men, women, and chainsaws kind of moment, dude. They they <laughs> reference it. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty fun. cool. Good it's times. it's very fun to watch Radio Silence be like, yeah, we read, <laughs> <laughs> we know about shit. Uh, anyway, but I, I think it's it's just interesting to to look back at this film from '83 and and see a culture that hasn't gotten bored with postmodernism yet. That yeah. hasn't said we have to do something new. We have to like iterate on that and, and, and bring in a self-awareness, which is sometimes interesting is sometimes makes you roll your eyes a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's hard to say like where the dividing line is. Uh, and, and it's hard to say like for me, just because everything I grew up watching was so influenced by the postmodern film movement. Like mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I have a hard time trying to see how that could be. I, you know, I know that annoys some people and I have a hard time seeing it because it's sort of like foundationally part of my film lexicon. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Whereas I can look at something like Deadpool or Star Wars Episode Nine and say, okay, now we're trying to be post-postmodern in a way that's sort of annoying. Yeah. Um, whereas sort of the pastiche, I'm, I'm more open to, right? Like, I could definitely see myself, if I were, you know, a few decades older, uh, not liking Return of the Jedi because of the ways in which it is not 
it's doing its whole own thing, but it's all piecemeal from other stuff. Right. And I think that's a fair criticism of these films is that they are so indebted to serials and these other, you know, stories that came before. Well, and I think this sort of does raise that industrial exhibition question about how the blockbuster and now the current tentpole model have sort of morphed and developed. Because we have 1983 and we have Return of the Jedi coming out, and it is the biggest movie of the year. However, it's not like there aren't other movies and there aren't other ranges of budgets of films that are being produced all the way through the 90s into the 2000 odds. But at some point, it seems to me that maybe the culprit for this put all your chips on a big tentpole kind of movie summer movie kind of thing as a studio might have much more to do with home streaming and home media, uh, which even at the time of Return of the Jedi, VCRs are existing, but they are not, you know, they, they haven't reached sort of population saturation until like 88, 89, uh, 90 even. And then that's when we sort of see the rise of rentals, but then streaming services and platforms come along uh, into the 2000 aughts and whatnot. And it seems to me that... Uh, at some point, a movie like Return of the Jedi became the, 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 the standard by which a studio would say, okay, so we're not going to get many people to come to the theater. So what is the one movie that they're going to see this year? What is the two, you know, one of the mm-hmm. three movies that they're going to see? And this movie sort of marks n- not the beginning of that process, but it marks that which those producers look back on and say, we can do that. We can get people, well, Star Wars uh, 7, 8, 9. We can do that, and that'll be the movie people come see this Christmas. That'll be the movie people come see this uh, summer. And, you know, alongside one other Marvel film, one other Fast movie, one other Star Trek. A children's film. Children's film, yeah, yeah. animated film of some sort, yeah, yeah whatever Disney's putting out. Mm-hmm. And, and the number of these things which are Disney. Well, whatever else Disney is putting out, and that's kind of a key part of this conversation. Is yes, In 1983, this was a film distributed by 20th Century Fox, and now it is under the rights of 20th Century Studios, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Corporation, which is, again, like part of this exhibition business model conversation we're always having on the show. Mm -hmm. The game is changing, and it is becoming about, like, who can own everything, and is how many players are going to be left standing once all the consolidations happen. Yeah. And and you know I I just I look forward to whatever the independent resurgence is going to be at some point because I, I people want I mean, to it's tell, been going for ten years now right with a twenty four and neon a twenty four and 20, neon are doing some of that yeah. yeah it was specifically in genre film sure and but I I'm I'm looking forward to where these sort of personal indi- you know kind of stories are going to get told more stuff like the farewell mm-hmm. which you know you're right a24 is kind of like makes a lot of bucks off of their their genre fair but yeah it's like when are when are they going to be able to do more moonlights more the farewells more things that are like you mm-hmm. know human drama and and you know a little low-key right and streaming you know provides an outlet for that you know yeah, if you can, actually dig deep sure. into prime into netflix into you can find a ton of or independent services features. like movie yeah yeah, yeah. yeah yeah you can find a ton of stuff well, even but, on Disney's Hulu, uh, you yeah. got Rye Lane, yeah. which is, you know, from their, is that a Searchlight film, I think? I think so. Uh, but I yeah, mean, yeah I mean, they're still putting like... Who's become like the Searchlight yeah. S- space. Yeah. Big time. But it's also, especially I think with Netflix and Prime, it's how do you find it? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's mm-hmm. like, it's great because these movies have a place to live, but nobody knows about them. Yeah, yeah. viewing yeah. strategies are going to be more and yeah. more important, I think. Yeah. I think this year in particular, which has felt like the big, 
quote unquote return to movies. Yeah. You know, and normalcy in a way. Well, thank you, Tom Cruise. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Spielberg thanked him, so can I. Um, so uh, I think this year is going to be an interesting place to see because we've had some other stuff besides just IPs, you know. And yeah. I think we've seen some of that, uh, you know, superhero fatigue actually coming through with the, the failures of Ant-Man and uh, the Shazam. Right. And well, and so, even Guardians, which you can't call a failure, but is not opening as big as they wanted it to open, yeah. which is the silliest thing about these modern blockbusters is like they can have the gigantic opening and it's still not enough. Yeah. Well, yeah, because you're doing a two hundred million you fail. Yeah. When your budget's over a hundred million plus market, you have to yeah. make billions of dollars to hope for some sort of success, yeah. at least in the investor's eyes. Right. Wild how there are people in this industry that think that it is a tenable situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so it'll be, I think, interesting. I mean, horror in the last couple of years has proven, I mean, continues to prove to be a, you know, huge box office The draw. stalwart genre yeah. in some ways, I mean, yeah. The other genres, though, are seem to be fairly hit or miss, so. Yeah. Well, and I think you present the real question, though, when you talked about finding them in the services, the, the streaming services, how do you dig down and find that? It, it's, it's not that these movies are not being made or that there aren't people out there who want to tell these stories or even people out there who want to finance these stories. It's finding audiences for yeah. those particular story Big that's time. that's yeah. the real challenge well because media landscape is different and again that's like mm-hmm. such a key part of this conversation it's almost annoying to bring up but it's just like i mean you want to hear some of the other top grossing films of 1983 yes, yes please. domestic box office number two obviously dustin was right number one is return of the jedi of course, of course. number two tootsie mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. a cross-dressing comedy number three flash dance a yes. coming of age, well, not really coming of age. Dance She's an adult, movie. a dance movie though, leg yeah, a dance drama. The leg warmers movie. Number four, Trading Places, a studio comedy. Go figure. Number five, War Games, a teen thriller comedy. Oh yeah, yeah, I've seen War Games. Yeah, yeah. Six, Octopussy, a Bond movie. Okay. Some things are eternal. Sure. You know, yeah. But it's things, number six. But it's number six. Number seven, Staying Alive, a sequel. Weird that Saturday movie. Night Fever. Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I did not know that it was such a high grossing film. Anyway. Great job, Sylvester Stallone. You directed multiple movies, and everyone wants to forget it. Uh, eight, Risky Business, a teen sex comedy. Number nine, Mr. Mom, a family comedy. Number ten, National Lampoon's Vacation, an adult comedy. How many fucking comedies in the top ten? Right. Imagine a comedy being in the top ten in 2023. Not going to happen. No, no. It it's no. so nuts. Like, And again, like it's you'd think that comedy would have legs at least a little bit of, of like horror. Cause mm-hmm. you know, as Arthur pointed out, like the horrors, jokes are always new and the scares are always new. Exactly. Yeah. And it's fun. To, They're also communal. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly what I was getting at. Yeah. It's fun to have people with you to get scared or laugh alongside you. And it's interesting to me that like the, the studio laugh because of comedy's nicheness, uh, and subjectivity, there just really isn't that model anymore. I mean, people mm-hmm. are, there are still studio comedies, but they don't do great. Right. People are trying to figure out how to crack that nut right now. Do you have a point of comparison there, Arthur? I see you there. No. I mean, the domestic box office for 2023 is IP, 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 IP. I mean, there's an anime. I mean, Puss in Boots. Megan is the first entry at number nine that is not an IP. Yeah. And it is a horror. Yeah, and then and the 10th one is an, is an IP that has not been in... Not kind in of an conversa- IP, yeah. ...in the conversation for a long time, but What's it's number 10? Dungeons, and Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, yeah, sure. And then Cocaine Bear at 11. Yeah. So, I mean, a comedy, but a horror comedy. Yeah. yeah. And that's the draw, is the horror, not the comedy. For sure. And for everything sure. else is an yeah, intellectual I was trying problem. To, I saw this the other day, and I was kind of shocked by it. Uh, I was trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 80 for Brady 
I don't know. Oh, yeah. Uh, is the... Let me go back here. Um, $5, you could go see 80 for Brady. It's the 17th highest uh, grossing film domestically. Uh, With $5 tickets, uh, which is pretty cool. At, at, it's brought in a uh, total gross of $40 million, hmm. um, which I think is just kind of fun. Yeah. That movie has got that much money. It's still got an audience, it beat out you know? Knock, knock at the Cabin. That's funny. You know? I'm trying to see Freddy. its worldwide gross, because I'm curious now. You know, it's even if it's something I'm not like interested in, I just it's nice to see a diversity of films competing. You yeah. know? And that is I, I know we get bogged down in this conversation almost every time we talk about a franchise film, but it's it's hard not to address like how it seems so innocent in nineteen eighty three has sort of ballooned and taken over the film industry. Mm-hmm. Um I mean there's there's nothing to do about it but sit and wait and see what happens and support the films you care about. Right. Uh as part of the film going public. But you know you, I'm I'm a freak. I go to the movies, you know, four or five times time. a month. Yeah. yeah. And if if you know, if more if I can. And I know that's not even for some cinephiles. That's just not feasible. Mm-hmm. You know, whether yeah. if you're a rural cinephile or you're yeah, yeah or you know I'm a voracious, so I'm a voracious the, home uh, streamer. I mean yeah. that's I mean I'm a cinephile and but I watch my movies at home. Yeah, you don't really yeah. go to the theater that often. Yeah. yeah. I mean and that's the you know, for a lot of people I think the average moviegoer, I mean, obviously ticket prices are a huge part of that. And then also the the idea of, oh, I'll just watch it when it hits streaming. Yes. And they yeah. probably never will. Well right. ex- a lot of people be- don't, yeah. Because just the absolute glut of stuff that's available. That's what I was about to say. To keep it on Star Wars focused, you know, if you're a Star Wars fan, now you have tens of hours of TV shows you also have to get through before you can say, you know, maybe I will watch an adult drama. Maybe I will broaden my horizons and stop watching bullshit for babies. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, that is how I feel about you if you're not watching stuff for adults. I'm sorry. <laughs> You've got to watch stuff for grownups. You have to. It's good for you. Yes. It's fucking bad for you to only watch Disney and MCU. It's not good. Yeah. Uh, and I know that there are people like that because I hear from their friends who say, Dalton, why do I know people who won't watch real movies? And I don't have an answer for them. I really mm-hmm. don't. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, it's weird. But as Arthur said, there's just a million hours of everything out there. It's, right. It's as Bo Burnham said it. It's a little bit of everything all the time, man. Like, there's just too much. Yeah, and well, I mean, it, it, you you love Return of the Jedi, great, and then you can spend the rest of your time watching the other three movies, and then the other other three. And movies. don't you want to know what and, happened to Boba Fett? And yeah, and then the Mandalorian as well, you know. And we also need to take some time to watch, you know, Obi Wan has got an origin story there. Yeah, don't you want to know how Darth Vader got that head wound when he takes his helmet off? Right, and and and, and we'll never get back, you know. And I mean, this was going on even then. I remember the cartoon droids. I remember watching an Ewok adventure. I remember watching Battle for Endor. Yeah. So I mean, there were there were efforts this direction then even. Dog, yeah, I was nine, twelve, and fifteen when the prequel films came out. Oh yeah, you were. In the- uh, yeah, I'm buying video games. I'm buying novels. I'm buying comic books. Like I am in a multimedia like ecosystem, mm-hmm. and they love it. I'm I'm a little cash cow, and I'm a teenager. I was 18, so I was just old enough to be mad about Jar Jar Binks. I'm sure which you I'm were. over now. Yeah, but. I'm sure you were furious, though. I was. I was 18. Yeah. So, yes, of course I was. Well, yeah. Who's not mad at 18? No. I was very into the pod racing. <sighs> I had yeah. pod racing on 64. That was fun. The Ben Hurness of it all, yes. Duel of the Fates, one of the coolest things I'd ever heard in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Uh, on top of one of the coolest fight scenes I'd ever seen in my entire yeah. life. Best fight scene ever. I mean, in, the, in, in Star, Star Wars? Wars? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty Darth much. Darth Maul, yeah. Qui-Gon Jinn, best fight. Ever. Ooh, that's fun. You guys want to like rank your top three Star Wars fights? Well, I mean that's number one. 
number number two is um oh uh, General Grievous and Anakin. Okay. Uh, slash slash Obi Wan. Okay. Uh, number three then would be for me. I think it's I think it's because of the pathos. It, it's 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 Luke and Darth. I think I go Luke and Darth and three in Jedi number one because of the pathos. Mm. Um, Darth Maul, Obi Wan, Qui Gon because it's sick. Uh, and then three, I think I go Last Jedi. I think I go Ray and uh, Kylo. Oh, for, for the versus, pathos again. For the pathos and for you know, I like it when two people like wreck shit on like twelve guys. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's cool. And then yeah. you don't get a lot of that in Star Wars. Yoda versus Dooku is really high too. I forgot. Really? About, yeah, kind of low for me. I, but it was because of my cinematic experience. Sure, you've told the story. Yeah, before. yeah. And yeah. so uh, my 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 crowd had already seen it and was already there for it. It was a football game moment. It was pretty pretty awesome. Yeah, it's that's fun. So. You got a you got a pick, Arthur? No, no, nah, it's okay. I just thought you know, it, let's let's. My let's... list would look like yours probably because I don't have that much. Yeah, of a knowledge of other fights. Sure, sure. I couldn't tell you anymore. And I well, and I kind of went for sort of the three biggest ones, but I, I think yeah. they're sick. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I just want to give let's give a little more Star Wars love after we got pissed off about how franchises the franchises have ruined the thing we love. Mm-hmm. Um, should we render a verdict? I guess we should. So what shall you say? Shell for trash. Return of the Jedi. Arthur, you must choose first. I, I'm not going to trash Star Wars. It seems stupid. Uh, I would shelf these, the original trilogy and Jedi as part of that. And I like it. So yeah, it's shelfable. Very good, very good. What do you say, Dalton? I would agree. I think if you're going to own any Star Wars films, you should probably own the original trilogy. Um, but, you know, get somebody's Disney Plus subscription. You literally never have to own a Star Wars movie. So that's also an option. And I'm not going to tell you it's an invalid option. I am, they, don't, they really don't need your money. They, they don't. Uh, I'm going to say that um, all nine films are shelfable. Uh, depending on your generation and where wow. you picked them up, uh, I think you could shelf any one of them or any nine of them. It's a very magnanimous answer. And uh, but that being said, they're fine. They're important. They're cultural artifacts. There are other movies out there, but yes, it is absolutely shelfable. There, an unimpeachable children's film. An unimpeach. Yeah, I I agree with that. So, so there you go, dear Lister. Um, it's the internet. You probably have an opinion. Dalton wants to know your opinion so bad. Yeah, so Dalton's going to tell you how. <laughs> I cannot wait to read your shitty little Return of the Jedi email. Tell me how you're a real grown-up for only watching Star Wars. <laughs> tell me. Tell me how you get to be a real adult and only watch stuff for babies. Or you're Disney princesses. I am. You are still allowed to spend thousands of dollars to go to Disney parks for your vacation. I'm not going to tell you to spend your free time. Mm-hmm. I'm just telling you, I don't know, maybe watch How to Blow Up a Pipeline. It's a cool movie. Uh, I want to see it. It's sick. Uh, tell us what you think about film, Return of the Jedi, whatever. Good trash genre cast at gmail.com. That's the name of the show you're listening to. Good trash genre cast at gmail.com for all your long form feedback. You can keep up with us on social media at good under at good trash media. Almost said the old handle. That's at good trash media on Twitter. Uh, we're around. We post links to this show, other stuff that we find that we think is interesting. Um, that's pretty much how to keep up with us on the daily. We don't really update any other socials, but you know, if you look hard, you'll find them. Uh, there's old written content at goodtrashmedia.com, occasionally updated with new reviews. Uh, but if you, if you want to see some writing from any of us, goodtrashmedia.com is a good place to go. Uh, finally, if you want to help support this endeavor, you can go to good patreon.com forward slash GTM. It's patreon.com forward slash GTM and, uh, find out what's in it for you. Uh, including, Picking a film for us to discuss on this very show, which I believe 
is what we'll be doing next week. That's right. And I think you have that pick. That's right. Unfortunately, I can't make my wife stop giving us money. I've told her she can just pick a movie and all. We love Becca. We, we are do. we are grateful, grateful for we Becca. We are very grateful to, my, to Becca. She rules. Uh, it's very cool that she gives us money, um, even though she could just ask for us to talk about a film, we probably would do it. Uh, so next week, because she's a patron, we will be discussing the 2000s comedy classic, speaking of studio comedies and how they used to be successful, this is going to be Reese Witherspoon in Legally Blonde. What a film. Very excited. I'm so excited. I've, I've a very never long seen time. it. Oh, it's fun. I've never seen it. I, yeah. My I sister and I it. used to watch this shit all the time, dude. Yeah, I have a very strong... It's like this, 13 going on 30, that era of mm-hmm. like uh women's studio comedies yeah i watched a bunch of those with my sister so i'm I'm looking forward to revisiting this one it's gonna be a good time i cannot wait thank you again becca but that's what's happening next dear listener and we've just finished part three's part trades what a good time we've had with you all we'll see you all next time so you keep watching we'll keep talking and then we'll see you the next time like i just said twice three times i'm not Thank you.